Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs. And I'm Cody Sims. And welcome to My Climate Journey. This show is a growing body of knowledge focused on climate change and potential solutions. In this podcast, we traverse disciplines, industries, and opinions to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and all the ways people like you and I can help. We appreciate you tuning in, sharing this episode, and if you feel like it, leaving us a review to help more people find out about us so they can figure out where they fit in addressing the problem of climate change. Today's guest is Britt Heller. She grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and was a traveling tire salesperson who got interested in solar and has made her way through the many facets within the PV industry, from doing door-to-door sales to back office sales to solar construction, and most recently working on workforce development and democratizing training access to get more people working in the solar industry. As part of the Skilled Labor Workforce series on the podcast, we met Britt through the GreenWork platform, and I've invited my friend Sam Steyer, who runs GreenWork, to co-host with me so we can ask Britt a bunch of questions and learn from her experience. We find out how Britt felt a calling to work on something more meaningful in life and applied for a solar job on a whim, how solar policy shifts uprooted her and her now husband from Louisiana to Colorado, what it's like to transition from doing sales to doing solar construction projects, and the empathy she's built seeing both sides of the house, and ways to build a more inclusive future workforce in the skills trade arena. With that, Sam and Britt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Yin. Hey. And hey, FCJ. I'm a member of the community, and for those of you who don't know me, I had a great time co-hosting with Yin and Andy Martinez from Sunrun, and I'm so excited for the second in our skilled trades series with Britt Heller. I'm the CEO at Greenwork. We help clean energy companies build construction and maintenance functions. And I actually had the great privilege of working with Britt. We offered a Solar 101 online course in the past, and Britt was the instructor, and she was just an amazing teacher and just an amazing person to work with, and really glad to have her back on today. Uh, Thanks, Sam. And hey, Ian, I'm happy to be here Super excited to be on the My Climate Journey podcast. Since we spoke a couple of weeks ago, I've had the chance to check out a couple of the podcasts, and you guys have an impressive lineup of folks on here. And so I'm super humbled to be a part of it. Thank you. Oh, thanks. That is beyond generous. Thanks for the feedback. And God, we're just so excited to learn from you today. I know we've had Andy Martinez on the show before who talked to us about his experiences as a PV technician climbing onto roofs. And, you know, we've seen him share pictures on our Slack channel about his day in the life. But you come from quite interesting path to the solar industry. So We'd love to hear a bit more about yourself. Where did you grow up? How did you find your way to doing so many things in the solar field? Yeah, yeah. So I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and I didn't find my way until the solar industry until I was maybe like 26. And that was back in 2015. I was getting ready to move back to the United States after several years abroad. And I was just looking at this job board for New Orleans, which is where I was pretty sure I wanted to move back to. And I saw this job for a solar energy consultant, and I was previously doing sales in the United States. And so I wanted to do sales again, but... I just knew like I wasn't going to sell something unless I was like 100% stoked on it. Like if I didn't like believe in the thing I was talking about every day, I didn't want to do it. And when I saw that job posting, I was 
like super unqualified based on what was called out there. And so, you know, had it in my back pocket. And then when I moved back to the States, I got a job with that same company as a door knocker. So knocking on doors and generating leads. And that was my my first entry point into the to my long love story being in the solar industry where I still am working. Okay. I want to backtrack and learn about, like you mentioned, you were abroad. Tell us about that experience and, you know, tell us about how you developed this curiosity about solar that eventually led you to move back to the States and, you know, get a job knocking on doors to try to sell solar panels. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was in the States, my job, I'm almost like mortified to say this, but I was a traveling tire saleswoman. So talking about tires day in and day out, really like that's what like was my drive to say, you know, any future jobs just have to be like, not only, you know, good jobs, but like, I need to feel like I am making a difference in the world by my work. We spend so many hours doing a job that at least for me, like if it's not aligned with my values and what I want to do, then it ain't worth it. And so, yeah, you know, like I was in Latin America for a few years. I was in Colombia at that time, really not doing anything related to solar, but it's like when I saw it, like There was just something about like how I felt when I saw it. I was just like, this is what I need to be working on. Like, and then since then, it's like every step has been like building my knowledge, building my skill set, building my experience to where I can like keep moving where I want to go in the industry. Was there like a visceral moment in time where like you saw like a solar panel field or, or, or something that you were like, ooh, this is interesting. Like, what was the hook? Mm, I wish that there was like this, like the ray of sunshine, like shines on me as I'm in the (laughs) field of solar panels, but nothing like that really happened. It was just like reading that job description and being like, whoa, I can like really help like address climate change. And like, you know, I can do a sales job, which is, you know, really focused on like revenue and, you know, producing, but all of that, like, work would be centered around something that's like also making a really positive change. Like it just like felt right. So it was just in my like really dumpy apartment in Bogota, like checking a jobs board is when I had that moment. Nice. And then tell us about this, this door knocking job. What was the company that you were working with at the time? And what was it like to do that? Like going literally door to door instead of selling tires, now convincing people to get solar panels. You know, door knocking is just tougher. I mean, I think everybody just can immediately sense like what's tough about knocking on people's doors and bothering them in their home. But it was interesting because people were still receptive. Like, you know, once I was like talking to people and kind of doing a a really quick like qualification, like is there shade on their roof? Does the roof like it's in good condition, like those sorts of things. And so when I kind of would talk to people and just really basically talk about it, you know, I wasn't there to like sell them a system. I was just there to ask them if they were interested. And and that worked out well. But, you know, I did that job for like two weeks and I luckily had gotten promoted. The company was Jewel Energy, who is still around. They're based in Louisiana and they moved me into an inside sales role. So that's like calling folks on the phone, reconfirming that they're interested in solar, and then scheduling appointments for somebody who's considered a consultant or an outside salesperson to go and seal the deal. 
So you were doing outside sales and now you're doing inside sales. This is the first time I'm learning the differentiation of those functions. What did you like about doing outside sales versus inside sales or the other way around? And I'd love to hear more about just like the role that policy played in your ability to be able to sell services and hardware to people. Yeah. Outside sales is definitely cooler to me. That is where I would be like going to people's houses, like sitting at their kitchen table and answering all their questions about the tech, explaining, you know, the process, explaining the incentives that were at play at the time in Louisiana, which were really, really great incentives. And so it's just was like fun to go like get a, a moment in people's world. And then to talk about something that I was like super hyped about. It was just fun. It was like getting to do something I love like all the time with different people. So that was super cool. And then yeah, at the time, the state of Louisiana had a tax credit that was essentially up to $10,000. And that was from the state, in addition to the federal ITC or investment tax credit, which was 30%. So ultimately, people could get a $20,000 solar system effectively for $4,000. And Britt, that was driving people's decisions? Or how did you find you know, individual people and individual families were making the decision to go solar? Yeah, I think it was varied. The decisions people chose to go solar were very varied. I think I was like a little sad at that time how few people were like, I'm fighting climate change and we're going to like change everything. Like not so much the energy there. I mean, for folks, it was just like a really smart investment. Like that is like a really quick payback time on a system. If you're essentially, and when you think about like selling a system and payback time, like people were basically paying $4,000 for a system, the energy or the electricity that that system produces month after month that they're not buying from their utility, those systems are paying themselves back like in full in like four to five years. So today, those systems are paid back. And usually the warrantied life of a system is typically like 20 years, maybe 25 years. That's just like pure profit that that rooftop system is producing on their rooftop. So after your role at Jewel Energy, I know that you moved to an organization called Grid Alternatives, but that was in Colorado. Curious what prompted the move? Yes. So all good things come to an end, I suppose. And the tax credit didn't quite change like immediately, but there was a lot of like politics around it. And ultimately, there was a lot of uncertainty around how people would get the tax credit. There was just really no way to know because they basically put a cap on it. And people weren't sure if they would get it or they wouldn't. And that's a really knowing if you're going to get a $10,000 credit on a system or not is like a pretty big, important part of the decision. So, so ultimately, the solar industry, the residential solar industry evaporated overnight, if you will. And so my now husband and I, we met at Jewel Energy and we were both like, really wanting to keep doing what we were doing or some version of it. And so we were researching what states are supporting policy, like where can we go and like build our career? And Colorado is like a really, really pro-solar, pro-climate action state. The idea of states passing good climate policies because cool people who want to work in renewable energy will move there, I feel like I have not heard before, but it's really awesome. And I know you went to Colorado and joined Grid Alternatives, and we're familiar and think Grid's an awesome organization, but for people listening who might not 
know what Great Alternatives is yet. Can you tell us a little bit about the organization you joined? Yes. Uh, I can't say enough great things about Grid Alternatives. They are a nonprofit. They're based in Oakland, California. They have several offices in California, Colorado, D.C., Nicaragua, and they also do work in Nepal and Mexico and also tribal lands, sovereign tribal nations as well. And they are all about clean energy access. So that is not only helping to provide the technology of solar panels on roofs to people who previously really didn't have access. They also really focus quite a bit on workforce development and job training because as we all know, clean energy jobs are really great jobs and they're quality jobs. And GRID focuses on helping more people get their foot in the door. Yeah. And I guess one thing I don't know that I mentioned, but but all their solar systems are typically are for low-income qualified households or nonprofits or, or other organizations like that. Was your role a continuation of what you were doing at Jewel Energy, doing a combination of inside and outside sales, or did your role change when you joined Grid? Yeah. So it was a, a total change. I went from a, a job where I was doing sales, making my own schedule, working anytime I wanted to a construction role and an entry-level construction role at that. And I was really intentional about wanting to to work and do a construction, AmeriCorps construction fellowship with Grid Alternatives for a few reasons. Like One of them was I knew for me to grow in the way that I wanted to within the industry, I had to build it. Like I needed to know like firsthand how to talk about building it. And for lack of a better word, I like needed the street cred to have done it and like can talk about it authoritatively. And so I went into this entry-level construction role. And another reason I chose Grid was that they were super intentional about being a training ground. You know, so many other companies, and I totally get it, they have to be, but they're really profit focused. And so it can be kind of pushed into working at a pace that I wasn't really prepared to work at. And I didn't know anything about construction. So I needed a company or an organization that was really willing to like, help me do this painstaking, getting ready and prepared to do this work. And as you got into the construction work, what did you like about it? What did you not like so much about it? For me, construction was the most humbling job I have ever had. Like to choose to go to work every day at something that I was like, I didn't know how to do at all. Honestly, it like just kind of felt a little like icky and like almost like humiliating. I would just be like, oh my God, I'm so bad at this. Like it's embarrassing to like not understand how to use like a drill or something. I remember like we were in Steamboat Springs and we were building this cement box, you know, building just a wooden box to pour cement in for a little transformer to sit on top. And I like didn't even know how to hold the drill properly. And our construction manager was like, hey, here, let me show you just, you know, hold the back of the drill and... You know, but like you only have to teach me that once and then I'm like able to do it. So it's just oftentimes kind of hard to find those organizations that are really willing to like take the time and invest. But like for me with Grid, I feel like that really paid dividends because I was able to really like keep moving and continuing after that. We're going to take a quick break so you can hear me talk more about the MCJ membership option. 
Hey folks, Ian here, a partner at MCJ Collective. Want to take a quick minute to tell you about our MCJ membership community, which was born out of a collective thirst for peer-to-peer learning and doing that goes beyond just listening to the podcast. We started in 2019 and have since then grown to 2,000 members globally. Each week, we're inspired by people who join with differing backgrounds and perspectives. And while those perspectives are different, what we all share in common is a deep curiosity to learn and bias to action around ways to accelerate solutions to climate change. Some awesome initiatives have come out of the community. A number of founding teams have met, nonprofits have been established, a bunch of hiring has been done, many early stage investments have been made, as well as ongoing events and programming like monthly women in climate meetups, idea jam sessions for early stage founders, climate book club, art workshops, and more. So whether you've been in climate for a while or just embarking on your journey, having a community to support you is important. If you want to learn more, head over to mcjcollective.com and click on the members tab at the top. Thanks and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, let's get back to the show. I have a question about just grid and how they operate as a nonprofit. And then I want to deep dive into what you learn having been on the sales side and also the construction side, because previously we, we've heard that those are two sides of the solar industry that sometimes there's some rub. But the first question with grid, it's a nonprofit. How does it sustain itself? Like what's the revenue model there? Yes, Grid is a super scrappy organization in that, you know, like most nonprofits, they are always working on finding funding to achieve their mission. That looks like individual donors, foundation grants. A lot of our work was considered fee for service. So we were being paid to build the projects like any other company would. And then once we started to really focus more on workforce development, there's a lot more funding as well to support workforce development. So really diversified funding mix. And it was always a struggle to figure out how things were going to get covered. And and hopefully in the future, that'll get easier for them as we're seeing a bigger need for the solar labor workforce. Got it. And then on the projects side of things, like what were you all building? Was it like residential? Like you would go into like tribal land and then like help put solar panels on like residential homes? Or was it commercial? Like tell us about the scope of those projects. Yeah, yeah. So most of the time, there's a specific tribal team that does most of the work in partnership with different tribes. But when I was there, we did just a handful of residences through, you know, some different cities, community development block grants, which is essentially HUD money or housing and urban development, I believe, for the folks who don't know. But what we were mostly working on when I was there was Grid Alternatives Colorado had won a a $1.2 million grant that was through the Colorado Energy Office. And it was a demonstration project so that all of these different rural electric co-ops could begin to have their own generation you know, of solar because they're all having to buy from a wholesaler in the area. They don't have their own generation. And, and with renewable energy becoming more and more online, it was a really good option for them to try out. And so a few years ago, a lot of those organizations were trying it out with GRID And all those different community solar arrays that we built were all dedicated low-income solar arrays. And it was cool. Like It felt like every project we would work on would be like, this is the biggest low-income dedicated array in the country. Like, But then like the next project we did, it's like, this one's actually the biggest one now. And then it ended up the last one we did that I worked on when I was on the construction team was a two megawatt project outside of Fort Collins. So it was fun. Like I love commercial community solar style projects. 
I prefer them more to residential just because I had to swallow my fear and get be okay with heights, but like, I still don't love them. If I can work on the ground, like much more happy working on the ground, but I will also climb up a ladder when I have to, but a little more chill on the ground. What do you think you got out of doing the construction work firsthand? And and would you recommend that people who work in clean energy who maybe do a function like sales or training, get some hands-on construction experience? Yes. I tell people all the time that there is nothing that will take the place of building it. I just think like generally, like if you want to be a project manager, like people have like a different disposition to you if you've been out there and you've like built it and you're, you understand what you're asking them to do. So I think it's just like a really good thing for everybody. If you're physically able to do it, to do it for a stint in your lifetime, if you're going to be in the industry as a career. But for me personally, like the skills that I gained at Grid Alternatives, like the construction skills were absolutely life-changing. The doors that it opened for me, not only just like with my career in solar, like for sure, like I had a lot more things I was able to do because of it, but just like personally as well. Like I build cool stuff all over my property, like all the time. And that's because the construction manager taught me how to hold a drill like six years ago. It's like so many doors open when you have those skills. And I could fix stuff if I wanted to. I could make really cool art pieces. Like, I just think the doors, just so much opens up if you have that skill set. And then not to mention like the actual like confidence boost of having that competency and like feeling really like fortified and like my abilities like that also is like an incalculable benefit. Going back to Sam's question around like the things that you learned, you know, and last time when we talked to Andy, he'd mentioned, you know, sales tends to focus more on like the quantity of just selling, 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 but not understanding just how long a project might take an installation might take. So having been on both sides, Britt, like what have you come to empathize slash understand about both of those two very necessary spheres of, of the solar industry? Yeah, I know a lot of construction folks just across the board who feel really like, ah, like these salespeople don't understand that like this can't fit here. There's fire setbacks. There's like, you know, like I think there's like a lot of stuff. And I think I was like pretty careful as a salesperson to like not over promise things that, but I think like a lot of times salespeople might want to like really max out a roof or have the biggest system that they can. And that in turn, like kind of pushes like some difficult decisions on operations and they have to tell a homeowner that it's not possible. So it definitely helps to have that perspective of construction when you are a, when you are a salesperson. Cause I think you tend to be like a little bit more careful about like what you like get everybody else into. (laughs) But generally speaking, at least in my viewpoint, I I oftentimes feel like solar sales jobs can tend to be like much higher paid than the construction side. I think that's like a societal like value sometimes that construction isn't worth as much. And I'm really happy to say that I do think the scales are changing as we're like having all these projects and pipelines, but they can't be built because there's not skilled tradespeople. So you're seeing that wage go up. So I'm really happy about that. But I think it says a lot about just 
our society that like certain jobs are valued oftentimes like much more than the jobs of the people actually building it. And I, I think that's a problem. And so you had done sales, you finished your AmeriCorps fellowship with GRID, and then you went into training and workforce development. Can you tell us a little bit about that decision and what that work was like? Yeah. Let's see. So my AmeriCorps term, construction fellowship term ended at GRID. And, you know, for several months, I actually didn't work at GRID. It's a small team, didn't have any openings. So I worked on building a house with somebody. So kept working on construction skills. But when the workforce manager, who is the current manager, was leaving and she called me and said, hey, I'm leaving. I think you'd be really good for my job if you want to apply. And, you know, I jumped at the chance because I think workforce development and developing people and increasing access to historically excluded groups into these really awesome living wage, quality jobs that have a lot of longevity, especially now after the IRA's passage. It's like exciting to be a part of that. And so, yeah, I did that job for all the years run together now past COVID, but I think I did that job for about three years or so. And I did a lot of training in that role. And then my team grew from just myself and a half of a person's time to five people by the time I was leaving. So I, you know, moved away from training and did a lot more program management and like fundraising and and relationship building and things like that. But it was awesome. That was probably some of the most stressful work, but also like fulfilling work too. Like just seeing people succeed made every bit of stress worth it. I'm a huge, huge proponent of like upskilling people so that they can gain economic ability. And to your point earlier about just like needing to, you know, give people jobs where they can earn a good wage so that they can provide for their families and and such. I'm curious if you have any examples from doing your workforce development chapter at Grid of some of the people that, that you helped train up in the solar field. Yes, there was like a lot of people who are like heroes of mine, like hearing about their journey and how they've continued on. Two people that come to mind, you know, we worked a lot with people who are leaving incarceration. That is a incredibly like undervalued group of workers, you know, people that are, have paid their dues. So let's let them move on. And they're like ready to work and like make up for lost time and like, achieve dreams. And one person who was incarcerated for seven years, and he he joined our program, one of our training cohorts. And I remember in the beginning of the class, he was a little bit of an older gentleman. He's like, I'm like, not sure I'm trying to do this kind of work. Like, I, w- I maybe don't want to do it. But he got out there and he like loved it and was really good at it. And then at the end of the cohort, got a job with a company he had also applied for a scholarship to do, you know, advanced training and he was getting it done. He was like nerding out on the technology. His company ended up like paying for him to continue on to more classes afterward. He was a crew lead and he wrote to tell us that he had bought a house, like him and his wife bought a house within like six months. I was like, you are like a rock star. So he's somebody who comes to mind. 
And then there was another, she was a woman who had a, a young daughter when she was joining our program and had been facing just like a lot of different challenges in her life. But she was really looking for some stability and like a path for her. And she wasn't really sure what she wanted to do. And I remember she said she went to the workforce center and they're like, oh, you can be like a secretary or like an admin. And there's nothing at all wrong with those jobs. But she was like, I don't, I want to do something different. And she didn't feel like they were like hearing her. But we we had got connected on a, on a social media network when I was promoting one of the cohorts. And she joined. And one of her biggest goals was she wanted to be in a position in five years to purchase a home for her and her young daughter as a single mom. And I actually just heard from her a couple of days ago. I wrote her months ago, but I just heard back from her. And she said she's in her final year of electrical apprenticeship, which is like sick. She's almost a journey person. Like that's like a a 70K to like an 85K a year job once you reach that level of electrical licensure. And I'm just thrilled by that. And the stories like that make every moment of the work and workforce development worth it is when you see people rock their dreams. That's so amazing. And one of the things we think about is, you know, we need a lot more skilled tradespeople working on the energy transition. How do people make the decision to work on solar or, or work on another low carbon technology versus you know working somewhere else in the trades where there's also a lot of demand right now? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's really like no wrong way to go or to try to get people to come over here to the solar side. I think it's really like what speaks to people's interest and what gets people excited with solar especially like residential solar, there's like certain things. Do you like to work on roofs? Yes or no? And if the answer is no, then like maybe that's not the right role for you. But there's so much commercial and utility scale solar. And it's really, I think, just like thinking about what you do every day, like what really sounds the most exciting. And to be honest, getting more people in any of the trades, I think is important. And so I think just people doing construction and trades work is like valuable, really worthwhile work. I want to talk about workforce development and how to get more people into the skills trade. And one of the areas I want to focus on is diversity. In my work previously, I worked at a foundation that looked at women and equality in the workplace. And there's a term that we often use to describe someone who is the only person that looks like themselves in a field. And they were called the onlys. And you are the first female identifying person on the series that we're talking to. And I've, you know, had many interests in many people. And there just is a dearth of female identifying folks in the trades. And I'm wondering if you can talk more about that based like from a personal experience side of things. And also maybe if you can comment on just the general industry and how do we get more diversity? Yes, that's really real. Representation matters and seeing people like you around you and where you aspire to be is like really important. And when I was making the decision to go into solar construction, I had interviewed with another company and I did a whole working interview, was working up on a roof with them all day. Like the company thought it was cool, like got a job offer and I turned it down because I didn't see a single woman the whole day. (laughs) And like at that point in my career, like I was not prepared to be 
the only, as you call them. (laughs) It was just too much of like a personal growth stretch for me in general, but to also be like the one lady, it was just too much. So I, I turned it down and then ended up later going to grid. And yeah, I think it's like a really huge opportunity for the solar industry to really like work on that. IREC comes out with something called the Solar Job Census, and they recently had their 2021 report come out. And I believe that women in solar is at 24%. Women are 24% of the solar workforce. And if you were to look at tradeswomen in the solar industry, like that number is like much, much smaller. And I don't know that there's even numbers on that that we've been able to find. And so, you know, I work with some other women who are really focused on it in the field. And there's a lot of women who are wanting to do work in this space who are actively solar trades people. And there's a lot of layers to getting more gender diversity in the industry, as well as all other types of diversity as well. But speaking to gender right now, wow, let's see, I guess I can just kind of go into a couple of things that could possibly support more women. I think straight away, companies should be willing to do more training to help people get started. That should just be like a requirement. I think just like having a lot of training just provides like the stage and opportunity for more people to feel comfortable in the space. I was listening to a talk and Grid Alternatives VP of Construction, her name's Anna Batista. She was talking about how they are working on doing an ally or bystander training for their construction team. I think things like that are kind of emerging in the industry, but really that's just like teaching everybody else on the team how to be supportive of just diverse thoughts and being inclusive in a space that is like not typically been regarded as such. I think it's important to change what's considered acceptable in a work environment. I'm in some different Facebook groups and there's like a group on solar installers that I'm in. And it is like oftentimes like a exhibit A of toxic masculinity. Like people will post a picture of their install and everybody's just like trashing them and just saying all this stuff. It's like this weird energy about like who's like the most macho install, done it the fastest, coolest. And then on the other hand, somebody that I've gotten close with over the last several months, her name's Riley. She's working on initiative Women in Solar, and she's got a group of women installers and and technicians and people post stuff and they're like, yeah, that's so awesome. Like always really positive. So really just like changing that stereotypical culture around construction, which is not the case in all places. So please like take that with a grain of salt. I don't like assume everybody is like that, but there is quite a few places like that. I think it's also important that leadership is modeling that behavior and they're really showing people respect and leading by example there. Also, you know, related to that, like having women in leadership roles, having other women on the construction team, like all of that's really important. And a lot of that's rooted in recruitment too. Like where are you finding the people that are working with you and what's on that job posting and how do you make it accessible for somebody who's maybe interested, but maybe doesn't check every single box right now. And another thing that I think is just important, and it just comes top of mind, I was just at a training in Boston for a youth empowerment farm, because farming is my other love. But they were talking a lot about how their curriculum and their like food justice 
farm and organization is really like not only talking about things like oppression and all these isms and things that are wrong, but really helping everybody celebrate their identity and be really like proud of who they are. And at Grid, they would used to say it as like bringing your whole self to work. And so being in organizations that are like that, that can look like affinity groups, that can look like just being curious. Like if somebody tells you something about their life, you like ask them more questions or you look it up and like have something to say about it. You know, it's just like really hearing people and like being there with them and like really accepting them. What you're saying really resonates and I think applies not just in the skills trades, but just generally good best practices to build more diverse teams. And early on, um, it reminds me of this analogy of, you know, what's the difference between diversity and inclusion and diversity is like if you throw a party and you say everyone's welcome and inclusion is like you make sure you buy vegetarian pizza, vegan pizza, meat eaters pizza, and you offer people rides to the party, really, you know, help them bring them in. And I think what you just touched on were just really important reminders to us all on how do you build a welcoming culture in a place or in a field that has predominantly been one way for a long, long time. Totally. Britt, where do you see your own career going from? And actually, we haven't asked you about your current job. So what are you doing right now? And what do you see yourself doing over the next five years? Yes. So right now, my role is director of program management at HeatSpring. And HeatSpring is an online training platform that specializes in technical training that addresses climate change. So solar is a huge component of that. We also have classes on geothermal, green building, a number of different topics. And in that role that I have currently, I do everything from working with students and making sure that they're having success with the platform. I also work a lot with instructors because it's a platform, like anybody can come there and teach a course. And so we have all sorts of different experts. And I love like trying to find more experts to bring their expertise to HeatSpring and to our community. I also, probably my favorite thing that I do and wish I could do more of it is building curriculum. So working with folks and helping them kind of map out logical ways to think about a course or bringing free courses to, you know, we've had everything from agrivoltaics to solar career pathways to a brownfields to greenfields class or developing brownfields for solar development. So it's been pretty much the sky's the limit with heat spring. And so that's been really, really fun. And where I see myself in five years is really probably twofold. We're at this really exciting inflection point within clean energy, you know, with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act last or in August. I feel like we're all on the solar coaster and we're like, our arms are in the air and we're like going on one of the down things, but we're like still cranking up to it. And it's going to be like exciting and it's going to be really challenging because, I mean, I'm sure no one needs to hear from me, but there's a labor shortage and nobody can find enough people to do the jobs that we have. And so really it comes down to like, how do we really build quality into all the jobs in the solar industry so that these are like the most exciting jobs and people feel really pumped about the energy transition in the United States. And so 
I see a lot of my work at HeatSpring being, you know, rooted in that. There's a lot of new labor requirements as a part of the Inflation Reduction Act. So we're going to see like a lot more registered apprenticeship programs and things like that, which I'm really excited about because that's just like building quality as I see it into a lot of these jobs and training and development. And so now it's a little bit more focused, if you will, because of that. And then on the other hand, I know I mentioned it going to a farm training, but I also have a 17 acre property here in Georgia that I am turning into a full on regenerative farm. And I hope to do a lot of training and education, particularly with youth out here, both as it relates to like job training, training and employability skills, but also just like getting your hands in the dirt and like knowing how vegetables grow and building stuff out here. Like basically all the things that like I wish I knew as a kid and and, and didn't like I want to do here rooted in this land. And have that farm be powered by solar panels that you will install yourself. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know it. We Our last place was pretty farmed up and solared up. We've got a couple of infrastructure things to sort out, but you know we'll be doing solar storage, the works, soon enough. Well, Britt, that sounds like a really amazing farm and place to be. This was such an educational and frankly uplifting conversation. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today and, and to share with the MCJ community. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And hey, if you're looking to get into the solar industry, you could welcome to hit me up on LinkedIn or, or wherever. I'm happy to do what I can to get you connected to these really great jobs. All right. Thanks, Brett. Thanks again for joining us on the My Climate Journey podcast. At MCJ Collective, we're all about powering collective innovation for climate solutions by breaking down silos and unleashing problem-solving capacity. To do this, we focus on three main pillars. Content, like this podcast and our weekly newsletter. Capital, to fund companies that are working to address climate change. And our member community, to bring people together, as Yen described earlier. If you'd like to learn more about MCJ Collective, visit us at www.mcjcollective.com. And if you have guest suggestions, feel free to let us know on Twitter at MCJPod. Thanks, and see you next episode.